Well, again, welcome. We are glad that you're here. You will notice on the front of our worship guide this morning, we are starting a new sermon series called Resurrection Matters. Uh, And we're really carrying on with what we started last week during our Easter sermon. And what we're carrying on is this battle against one dayism. What is one dayism, you ask? It's a word that I may have made up. All right. Um, uh, I've been known to make up words. Christy Danner, our worship director, knows I make up words. Most often it's because of mispronunciation, my accent, or ignorance. Uh, But this time it's intentional. Okay, Danner, this is intentional. One dayism. There are at least two aspects uh, of one dayism. All right. Maybe more. It's my word. I don't know. But for right now, there's at least two aspects. Aspect number one of one dayism is this tendency within the Christian church, among Christians, to really give significant attention to the resurrection on one day, right? Last Sunday, Easter Sunday, that one Sunday we give attention to the resurrection, and then there's this propensity to kind of put our heads down, move on, study another book, and get moving, all right? That's aspect number one of one dayism. Aspect number two is this. We, some of us can think, okay, yeah, there is one day where these truths of the resurrection are going to be really important, right? There is one day that's hopefully very, very far out into the future when I know I'm going to die. That one day then, that's when these truths of the resurrection are going to be important, all right? We are battling one dayism, both aspects, because, friends, we want you to see it's not one day. It's every day that we need to understand the resurrection and what it means for our life. Whether we're seniors in high school or senior citizens, every one of us needs to understand what the resurrection means for our life. And regardless if if you walked in here this morning religious or irreligious, agnostic or apathetic, your deepest longings and hopes and desires, I promise you, they connect to the truths of the resurrection and what we learn from it. And so my, uh, my suggested title for the series was um, we couldn't fit everything we wanted to say about the resurrection into one sermon, so we decided to try to do it in six. But I was voted down, and we went with Resurrection Matters. All right? So for the next six weeks, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 a chapter that's entirely about the resurrection. This morning, we're going to look at the first 11 verses as you heard Anne read them for us. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Mighty and merciful Father, we pray by your Spirit, help us to hear from you this morning. Change us by your word. We wish to see Jesus. Help us remember that the grass withers and the flowers fall but your word remains forever. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's let's start with chatting a little bit of context. If you look there on your phones at the verse or in your Bible, however you have it open, you see that the very first words, uh, now I could remind you, all right, let's clarify, who is I and who is you? We're jumping in at chapter 15. That's the end of the letter. If we go back to the beginning, the opening verses of the letter, we see that the I is the Apostle Paul and the you is the church in Corinth, 
All right? That's the I and the you. We're going to talk more about Paul later, so let's uh, get our heads around Corinth and the church there. Corinth, uh, a recent historian wrote this about uh, Roman Corinth, all right? Roman city, capital of a province. The governor was seated there. The historian says this, Roman Corinth was prosperous, cosmopolitan, and religiously pluralistic, accustomed to visits by impressive traveling public speakers, and obsessed with status, self-promotion, and personal rights. That sounds familiar. I can't place it. Um, That's something of what the city was. Now, what about the church, the church of God that was worshiping there? Um, If you read the entire letter of 1 Corinthians, which I would suggest that you do, sometime today, sometime this week, for, for this series that we're in, it would be helpful for you to read the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. And you will learn when you read that letter that the church is a hot mess. All right, like choose your description. Hot mess, dumpster fire, goat rodeo, whatever you want to call it, it is a broken and jacked up place. All right, chapters one and two, Paul says, hey guys, what's this I hear about the division among you? Like you form some strange allegiances and alliances. Um, It's like some of you are bragging that you were baptized by the senior pastor and others feel ashamed because you were baptized by the associate pastor. Like uh, the celebrity pastor culture is not new to 2022, all right? Um, And that's just chapters one and two, right? Chapter five, Paul says, wait a second. I heard that there's a sexual immorality among you that's worse than what goes on outside the church. What's going on there? Chapter, chapter 6. Uh, hey, guys, I hear that you're taking each other to court. Like, not, like the Roman court. You guys from the church are going to the Roman court and suing each other. Chapter 8. You're getting wrapped around the axle when it comes to all these food laws. What's going down there? Chapter 11. Chapter 11. You're getting drunk in the church. What in the world? Dump, stir, fire. So you're writing a letter to this church. Where do you even start? What are you going to write? We see for Paul that he begins and ends with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Right? Chapter 2, verse 2. Hey, I showed up and I proclaimed to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. That's what I showed up with. And then come to chapter 15, pretty much the end of the letter. It's abundantly clear that Paul thinks this hot mess of a church needs to be real clear about the resurrection and what that means. It's not probably where I would have gone, but it's clearly where Paul thinks they need to go. And so we're going to look at these first 11 verses this morning, and we're going to see that for Paul, the resurrection means two things for the Corinthians and for us, right? It means a new confidence and a new identity, a new confidence and a new identity, all right? Look at these opening verses. Look what he says right here. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, and you can read that word brothers and sisters, of the gospel. Uh, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. 
Paul says, I want to take some time to remind you because apparently you've forgotten, which is a good lesson for us. You can forget the gospel. You can receive it, and somehow it can slip your mind. And so for Paul, the remedy of what's going down in 1 Corinthians, the remedy is a reminder. I'm going to remind you of the gospel. I want to remind you of what Jesus is doing in you and what Jesus has done for you. In you and for you. He says, remember what Jesus has already been doing in your life. Jesus brought me to come to Corinth to share news about him. All right, if you want to read about it, check it out in Acts chapter 18. You can read about Paul's time in Corinth. He says, God's already been in work in your life. He brought me to share the good news of Jesus Christ in your life. Jesus and I preach the gospel. I always want to be clear here. We hear that word gospel. My prayer is for as long as I'm here at Capitol Press Fairfax that people know that the gospel is the good news about what Jesus Christ has done. Paul didn't show up and preach good advice or good instructions or uh, moral lessons. He preached good news about what Jesus did and what that means for our life. So he tells these Corinthians, hey, remember what Jesus is doing in you. I showed up there, I proclaimed who Jesus was, and you received it. And this is the gospel that's at work currently saving you. All right? He's pointing to the fact that the risen Jesus is still working in their life. Because it's all well and good to call Jesus the good shepherd. Right? But if the good shepherd die, that's not real good news. That would only be good news for those who were sheep when the good shepherd was alive. All right? Sorry if you're a sheep after the good shepherd dies. It's no good. Right? He's pointing to them to the fact that, no, Jesus is alive, the gospel is still true, and that's where your hope is. Jesus has been working in you, church in Corinth. That's where your confidence lies. Remember what Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Those in Corinth had been putting their trust in all kinds of things. They've been putting their trust in earthly human leaders. They had been putting their trust in dietary laws. They'd been putting their trust in this Gnostic teaching, all right, stick with me here, all right, this teaching that was saying basically the material world and our physical bodies, they're kind of inferior. They're really not all that important, so we can really do whatever we want with whoever we want. It really doesn't matter. The church was putting their trust in all kinds of things, their confidence in all kinds of things, and Paul says, no, this is where your confidence goes, in the gospel, and the fact that Jesus has been working in your life. So... What are we putting our trust in? This morning, April 24th, what are we putting our trust in? Where is your confidence? Because for some of us, we know that our lives might be a dumpster fire, right? We know that our families might be a hot mess. What's going on there? Or we, um, to the outside world, it might look like we're following all the rules, Like we've got all of our stuff together. We're checking off all of the boxes. (laughs) But that's only led us to a sense of pride and superiority. It has not led us to a love of God and a love of others. That's still misplaced confidence. (laughs) Paul says, put your confidence in what Jesus is doing in you. But he also doesn't stop there. He says, put your confidence in what Jesus has done for you. In verses 3 through 8, he starts talking about what Jesus has done for you. Um, There is a uh, a pastor up in New York City called Tim Keller. He wrote a book called Hope in Times of Fear, The Resurrection and the Meeting of Easter. 
I would commend it to you. It's a helpful book. I have a few up here, you know, don't fight each other for them because that would kind of go against the point of what we're talking about this morning. But uh, if you want it, uh, you know, you can come up here. Uh, you can also order it on Amazon. It'll be at your house tomorrow. So, um, but he makes a helpful point when he's talking about the resurrection and when he's talking about what Jesus has done for us, right? Let's look at these verses there, especially starting in verse 3. Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance. Paul says, hey, the most important thing I said, this is, this, this is it, uh, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Um, and here's the helpful point that Keller makes, and it's helpful for us to realize this morning. Friends, Christianity sets itself apart from all other religions in this right here. And then it says, above all and before everything else, you must believe that these historical facts happened. Now, do other world religions, uh, are they set in the context of history? Do they have historical figures? Of course, yes, they do. But in those religions, those historical figures and contexts, they basically point to this. Here's how you're supposed to live. This is the way that you're supposed to live. Look, use these historical figures as models, and then you will find the way of wisdom, the path of life, and, and have unity with the infinite. But Christianity shows up in the scene, and it doesn't say, um, here's how you must live. It says, here's what Jesus did in history and you must believe that. As an altogether different starting point, if you're tempted to believe that all world religions are essentially the same and superficially different, that could not be farther from the truth. Christianity has an altogether different starting point. Now, there would be some that would say, hey, okay, yeah, well, Rob, um, you know, in the modern world, we don't really need to hold to the historicity of the Scripture. I just said historicity. I'm sorry. We don't need to believe like, that the, the Scriptures are historically reliable or accurate. Um, we can just have like the message of Easter, right? We'll just have the idea of Easter, and we can glean from it lessons of love and sacrifice and humility. Um, friends... It wasn't moral lessons or poignant fables that turned the Roman world upside down, right? It wasn't, it wasn't moral fables or nice lessons that led men and women to lay down their lives, to sell their possessions and give to any that had need, to, to forsake home and families and go tell others the need of Jesus Christ and his love and forgiveness. No, um... What led to that is that the God of the universe stepped into history at a particular point in time and showed his great love for us and that he died on the cross for our sins. And when people realized that, and when people saw that um, not only did he die for our sins, but he was resurrected, this power that they couldn't explain, that's what led them to lead these radical lives and to love and to give their lives away. Paul says, listen, the Old Testament scriptures, they point both to the fact that he was going to need to die and to the fact that he was going to rise again. And he also says, hey, here's all the eyewitnesses. 
All right? If you want to know about the resurrection, just go ask these people. And you know what? A vast majority of them are still alive today. You can go talk to them now. Um, I'm happy to talk to you about this more offline. I think sometimes also there's a tendency to think, well, first century people were just gullible, right? Like they just believe stuff like this resurrection stuff. Let me tell you, that's not going to hold up under the facts. They were just as skeptical then as we would be now about this message about someone who had risen from the dead. So Paul makes it clear the resurrection really happened. It's not a fairy tale to make us feel good. Um, It's a true story of a living Christ that has worked in us and for us to bring us salvation. All right, a new confidence and a new identity. Paul turns to his own story, right? He he says, okay, well, let me tell you a little bit about my story. Verses 8 and 9, he starts making this turn, and he makes it personal. And he says, basically, my story has two parts. I'm going to tell you about who I was and who I am now. And what's at the center of those two parts is the resurrected Jesus, the risen Christ. And if you are a Christian here this morning, you have a story And your story has two parts, and at the center of your story is a resurrected Jesus. Your story might not be as dramatic, it might not be as sudden, but it's a story nonetheless. It's a story we should be sharing. Paul says, listen, I'm going to tell you about my story. (laughs) He says, last of all, as one untimely born, Jesus also appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. What's up with this untimely born stuff? He's basically saying, yeah, I just listed a bunch of names, guys that saw the resurrected Jesus, and one of these is not like the other, all right? One of these came along kind of a different way, a different beginning, a different birth, if you will. Because you know what? While all of those guys were spending time with the resurrected Jesus, I was busy trying to persecute them. Right? While all of those guys were busy worshiping and teaching about the resurrected Jesus, I was busy putting them to death and putting them in jail. That's what Paul wants the Corinthians to be real clear about. Hey, this is who I was. It's clear he's deeply ashamed about this chapter in his life. He's, he's ashamed of, he, he knew he was an enemy of God. He knew what he had done. Would, it brought suffering to those who were innocent And he was about the work of destroying something that God loved. We can imagine his shame, right? Um, And some of us know the shame in our life, right? Like some of us know the regret from our past, things that we've done and mistakes that we've made. Um, I mean, imagine on the screen behind me uh, some of the scenes from your past, right? The ones that you hope no one ever finds out about. What if those scenes were on the screen behind us? Right? I know I, for one, could not get out of this auditorium fast enough if you saw some of my darkest days and most shameful moments. Think about what those scenes would have been for Paul. The cries of those whose life were taken the faces of those who had been put in jail. That, that those were the scenes for Paul. But then look how he deals with his past, what he does with his past. I would contend, friends, many of us suffer, are confused, 
and really face difficulties in life because we don't know how to process our past, like our story. We, we don't know what to do with it. Let's look at what Paul does when he, he talks about his past. He acknowledges its shamefulness uh, and the brokenness. Um, you know, some of us deal with our brokenness by we deny it or we make excuses for it. Um, we kind of um, just explain it away. We either try to tell ourselves we're really not that bad or we compare ourselves to others and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. Uh, and then some of us go to the opposite side of the spectrum. And you notice Paul doesn't do that. Some of us go to the opposite side of the spectrum and they're self-loathing. Like we can't forgive ourselves. We actually try to spend the rest of our lives atoning for our past. Like somehow I've got to make up for it, but I really never feel close to God because I just know there's always this thing right there. There's this brokenness, there's this mess from our past. Paul doesn't do that either. When it comes to the brokenness of his past, um, Paul looks to the risen Jesus. He remembers that road to Damascus, and and he says this, um, By the grace of God, I am what I am. That, that's his hope. Notice he doesn't say, I think what I think or I do what I do. No, this is a new identity. I am what I am. And friends, that's good news. It's good news because of this. We're no longer defined by what we've done or what we haven't done, right? We're no longer defined by the degrees on our walls or the trophies on our shelf. I really feel for a lot of the kids that walk in these high school hallways, for our high school students and for our middle, middle school students, because um, I know how absolutely obsessed they are with trying to define their identity and trying to proclaim their identity and make sure everyone knows their identity. Um, we live in a culture in some ways that's obsessed, right, with uh, that kind of work and kind of those kinds of proclamations. This is who I am. This is how I identify, and especially for our students, oftentimes they're trying to do that when they're left to their own devices. They're just looking inside, trying to figure out best they can and then make this proclamation, right? Um, And I know if left to myself, all I had to do was look inward and trying to figure out who I was. Well, it would really depend on kind of what day it was and how my emotions are, right? Like, Christians, uh, in all the discussions of identity, all right, and otherwise, let's make sure that we're just not judgmental jerks as we engage with those kinds of discussions. Because let's remember, all of us are tempted to place our identity in something other than Jesus. And all of us do it on any given day in any number of ways. It might be more societally acceptable some than others, but we place our identity in something other than Jesus. Paul places his identity in the grace of God. That's where his identity rests. Thankfully, we have a place. God has rescued us from all that, and we have an identity that rests outside of ourselves. Paul says that identity is the grace of God. That's where we point people to. You can have hope and be rescued from constantly trying to figure out who you are. You are someone who was loved by the Father who sent his son to live the life you should have lived and die the death you deserve to die so that you could be brought into this family. That's who you are, truly and ultimately. That's the message we share. So, Paul, uh, to this hot mess of a church in Corinth, he says, I want you to know that the resurrection has brought you a new 
uh, confidence and a new identity. And I love this too. It's not like, okay, well, there's grace and then nothing really changes. No, he says, this grace entered into my life and actually it led me to work harder than anyone else. Like my, my, what I did with my time, how I lived my life, how I spent my money, everything I did was changed by this grace, right? So those in Corinth, if you experience the grace of Christ, um, you're going to realize your body's not your own, and so you're not going to go sleep around like that. If you experience the grace in Christ and taste of that, you're going to realize that uh, it doesn't come down to what kind of food you eat or don't eat. It's who Christ is and who he is for you. If you taste the grace of Christ, you're not going to lift up any pastor and put your hope in him. That's about as asinine as it gets. If you experience the grace of Christ, you're going to trust him and know that he loves you very much. So church at Fairfax, what you need this week and what I need this week is interactions with the risen Jesus. All right, through prayer. Jesus, show me yourself. Speak to me through his word. Again, read 1 Corinthians. Through his people in community groups, you need experiences with the uh, risen Jesus to be reminded of your confidence and to be reminded of your identity. And it's the grace we find in him that changes everything. The risen Jesus doesn't leave us us where we were. He changes our lives. And yet sometimes um, we are more like the Corinthians than we would like to admit. But Paul doesn't say to them, um, try harder or do better. He reminds them, no, you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Live in light of your new identity that you have in Jesus. Let me pray that we would do that this week. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that we have in Christ. Um, uh, I pray for myself and for my friends. Help us to see Jesus. Uh, I pray that the message uh, from this pulpit, from whoever would give it, would always be Jesus and the good news of what he's done for us. I pray for some here for the first time, Father, maybe they need to stop placing their confidence in themselves or other people and for the first time place their confidence in you. And for those of us who have wondered, who have forgotten, in your grace, draw us back. And remind us of your love for us and your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.